in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome to episode 22 of season 4 of Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this show is Frogs and Mice Behaving Badly. Today on the show we have Dr. Joel Christensen, Associate Professor of Classical Studies and Comparative Literature from Brandeis University. He is the chair in the Department of Classical Studies and teaches courses in Greek, epic, and archaic poetry, rhetoric and literary theory, linguistics, and mythology. He has written articles on language, myth, and literature in the Homeric epics and has published a beginner's guide to Homer and Homer's Thieves. This episode spotlights Joel Christensen and Eric Robinson's book titled A Commentary on the Homeric Battle of the Frogs and Mice. It can be obtained from Bloomsbury Press and is available on Amazon. A special thanks must be given to Matthew Lee Embleton, who has written an original musical piece for Ancient Rome Focus titled The Battle of the Frogs and Mice. He is a creative composer of modern music with an ongoing love of classical and early music. He is known for his experiments with the lute, and his music is available on YouTube and Spotify. With the permission of Penguin Random House Audio, we have an audio presentation of George Martin's Battle of the Frogs and Mice, including Dr. Christensen reading from his original translation. Dr. Christensen begins and ends the tale. The middle section is Graham Malcolm, whose recording can be attained from Penguin Random House Audio. sake of the song I've just set down on the tablets on my knees. A song of limitless strife. The war-rousing work of Ares. Because I hope to sound to the ears of all mortal men how the mice went forth to best the frogs, imitating the deeds of the earth-born men, the giants as the mortal tale goes. It has this kind of a beginning. Once upon a time, a thirsty mouse escaped the weasel's danger and then lowered his greedy chin down to a pond to take pleasure in the honey-sweet water. A pond-loving frog, a big talker, saw him and uttered something like this. Friend, who are you? From where have you come to our shore? Who sired you? Tell me everything truly, so I don't think you're a liar. If I consider you a worthy friend, I'll take you home where I will give you many fine gifts of friendship. 
I am King Bellomouth, and I'm honored throughout the pond as the leader of frogs for all days. My father, Mudman, raised me up after he had sex with Water Mistress along the banks of the Eridanus. I see that you are noble and brave beyond the rest, and also a scepter-bearing king and a warrior in battles. Come closer and tell me of your lineage. Ben, Crumbbeef, answered and spoke. Why do you seek out my lineage? It's known to all men, gods, and flying things in the sky. I'm known as Crumbthief. I'm the son of great-hearted Bread Nibbler and my mother Mill Licker, who was daughter of King Hamnibbler. She birthed me in a hidey hole and nourished me with food like figs and nuts and all kinds of choice sweets. How could you make me your friend when our nature's so different? Your life's in the water. But it's my custom to nibble away at the foods of men, and I never miss out on thrice-needed bread in the well-rounded basket. Nor does a long-robed flat cake dressed out with plenty sesame and cheese ever escape me. Neither does a ham slice, a white-robed liver, nor the honey cake which the, even the gods desire, nor the things cooks carve out for mortals' feasts when they season the dishes with every kind of spice. I've never fled the dread song of war, but instead I head straight into the danger and join the forefighters. I don't fear people, even though they have such great size. No, I run up to their beds and bite the tip of their fingers, and then I take their ham and no pain overtakes the man. No one wakes from sleep when I bite him. But I do really fear two things over the whole earth, the hawk and the weasel who bring me great grief, and also the grievous mouse trap where deceptive fate awaits me. But I fear the weasel more than anything, that beast who is best at burying a hole dweller out of his hole. I don't eat radishes, cabbages, pumpkins. I don't munch on pale beets or parsley. battle. Then the frogs with a great cry called on their gods and sounded the fell note of war, while up the bank each mouse in place knelt by his spear and prayed to the god of the fields for victory. Then each side, shrieking, rushed at the other. Mud Man was the first to fall, speared through the chest so hard he fell back and was pinned to the ground. Pot searcher the herald was the mouse that did it. But Pondlarker saw and struck him in the belly, right through the midriff. Down he fell on his face, and his soft fur filled with degrading dust. Then Plate Licker smote Loud Croaker, so that his soul soft from his lips, and by him died many more, with none to know their last words. Then the giant frog, Cabbage Eater, picked up a large pebble, smashed it on Plate Licker's helm, and blood gushed from the mouse's nose and ears, while his soul flew forth from his mouth. Meanwhile, Cheese Nibbler hurled his spear at Puffjaw, but the aim was poor, and before he could recover, Puffjaw severed his head with a stroke. <coughs> the death of Cabbage Eater. At first the god of war seemed to favour the frogs, and the fight flowed against the mice who retreated up the bank. But Troglodyte, a prince of mice, rallied the despairing, and killing two frogs with one blow, led the charge along the bank. Even the giant frog Cabbage Eater fled before him, retreating down to the water's edge, where he turned, but too late. 
a troglodyte, whirling his sword overhead, slashed him from his head to his soft stomach, so that he never more drew in air, and his sticky blood stained the sand. He was truly a giant among frogs, and as he lay, his fat entrails, by his small gut's impulsion, broke way out at his wound. Then were the frogs afraid. Some took to the water, others hid among the lilies. Even Puffjaw crouched irresolute, his neck skin quaking in and out, and with the others looked to Pondlarker, standing alone on shore among the dead. That frog looked long at them, at the pond with its tranquil lilies and the sky reflected in its surface. Then he turned and, taking the sword from the limp hand of dead Cabbage Eater, called to Troglodyte in these words, Great Prince, come, for you or I must this day die. We cannot both survive. At these awesome words, all other mice save Troglodyte fell back and cleared a space. High on the bank, the old king, white-whiskered Ham Noor, saw his son step forward, raised his hand as if to stop him, and then let it fall with a sigh. Pondlarker and Troglodyte. The two warriors faced each other, saluted, then warily began to circle. Troglodyte struck first, a quick thrust at the neck which Pondlarker parried even as he slashed at Troglodyte's shoulder. But the mouse was too quick and leapt from under the blow. Then the strokes came thick and fast, till those around did later swear the very ground began to tremble at the sound. But neither could the other scratch. The mouse was too nimble and the frog too strong. So they stopped to catch a breath, and in that instant the crowd around began to cry again and cheered to urge them on. You fight far better than your cause deserves, gasped Troglodyte. Softly Pondlarker replied, Bad causes have only courage to recommend them. Then grasping his sword, he struck at Troglodyte, who warded with his shield, bent double and thrust up. His sword point scored Pondlarker's arm, and the bright blood sprang out for all to see. The mice cheered, but the frogs groaned, and some called Pondlarker coward. But he, not pausing or protesting, smashed his shield against Troglodytes with such force the mouse staggered and only just recovered to avoid the sword. But even so, his shield lay shattered and his left arm hung loosely at his side. Now the advantage was Pondlarkers, and the watching frogs clamoured for the mouse's death, while the mice, fearful, fell silent. But now Troglodyte fought more brilliantly than before. Like an angry gnat upon the water, he darted in and out, thrusting, parrying, and always high, so that Pondlarker's gored arm grew tired, and the mouse's sword began to flick Pondlarker's soft throat till it seemed he sweated blood. Then Pondlarker stepped back and cried, A word! A boon! And Troglodyte, his left arm slapping on his side, paused. Only this, the frog began. When you kill me, let no one speak over my body but yourself. And thou for me, the mouse responded. Then mice and frogs around the pair cried, Villain, traitor, and he's not our kind. But higher on the bank, Troglodyte's father began to weep. 
The two saluted, sighed, stepped back and crouched again to kill. This time Pondlaka struck first, a mighty blow but one which missed its mark, and Troglodyte returned with a thrust to the side. Then followed thrust and parry, parry, thrust, all so swift that in a second none could see Troglodyte's sword cut through the frog's throat to the backbone and the blood splashed over the mouth. But even in that instant, Pondlaka, with a last mighty effort of his legs, leapt and fell against Troglodyte, stabbing him through the breast. As each fell, he gripped the other, and they rolled in an embrace till all their blood was mixed. So Zeus took pity on the frogs from Olympus and sent helpers straight away to the frogs. Suddenly, the armor-backed, crooked clawed, bow-wailing, twi twisted, scissor-mouthed, hard-shelled, bone-built, broad-backed, with shining soldiers, crooked-legged, lip-stretching, with eyes set on the chest, eight-footed, two-headed, handless creatures who are called crabs, went to war. They easily cut off the mice's tails with their mouths, along with their feet and hands, and then their spears were bent back. The cowardly mice were frightened of them and waited no longer to turn to flight. The sun was already setting, and the end of this war was accomplished in a single day. This is Rob Kane from Ancient Rome Refocused. I have on the line Dr. Joel Christensen from Brandeis University, who with Eric Robinson wrote the book, The Homeric Battle of the Frogs and Mice. Dr. Christensen, thank you for being on the show. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for asking. Uh, was, was this poem written by Homer? I don't think this poem was written by Homer for a few reasons. Um, one, uh, it's much too late to actually come from the same period as the Homeric epics. And we know that from um, sort of the language inside, the style and some of the content. Um, and two, um, I don't talk about Homer writing. Um, and so that brings us to sort of like a broader issue, um, which is that the Homeric epics come out of a living oral poetic tradition that lasted for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the poem we have, um, the Patrakumumakia, the Battle of the Frogs and Mice, is a mock epic sort of based on that oral tradition. Um, so we know that there were other animal epics sort of playing with um, Homeric conventions. But I think this one most likely comes from what we call the Hellenistic period, maybe even the imperial period in the Mediterranean. So sometime, I think, between the first century BCE and the um, first century CE. So I would say if I had to stick, you know, uh, money down on a table and bet on it, and I could have two whole centuries to play with, I would say sometime the 200 years from, say, 99 BCE to 99 CE. 
Is it typical to have a poem that doesn't have a name attached to it? One question is who gives things their names? Do authors name them or do audiences, you know? Um, so part of what we have here is a manuscript tradition that really doesn't get going until the Byzantine period. So, you know, after the sixth century CE. Um, and a lot of names are given by libraries, right? Like we know that the Iliad and the Odyssey as as traditions and stories were named Ilias and Odyssea at a pretty earlier pe early period. So it's earlier earlier than Plato even. Um, but other things have names that you know that, that change over time. Um, so as far as the Batrachamul Machia, um, it's pretty clear that this is a name for a poem or a story um, as early as Alexander the Great. Right? He jokes about something being a frog a frog battle. Um, and, or mice battle. And there are other references to similar things. So we know that there are animal epic traditions that have similar names. Uh, so this could have been a title even before the poem that we have existed. Is this poem in the tradition of Aesop? Um, so that's another good question. You know, there is an Aesopic fable, probably from, um, I think it's number 302, that is really, uh, it's questioned. Right. And the question is um, whether or not the fable or the poem came first. Um, so we have a brief fable and the fable 302 tells the basic story at the beginning of the poem. So it has a frog uh, be inviting a mouse to dinner and then the two of them um, talking about whatever they're going to eat. And then uh, the mouse dr drowning in a pond. Right. Um, but in that story, a bird comes down um, and grabs the mouse and the frog and they both die. Right. So that's a core story that doesn't tell pretty much, uh, let's say, 80 percent of what we have in the Battle of Frogs and Mice, um, where you have after the mouse dying, the mouse's family arming for war against the clan of the frogs and then the gods intervening um, and it turning into a whole, you know, mock epic battle. So I'm, I'm not really willing to say which came first, the fable or the mm, poem that we have, but because I think it's likely that there are antecedent forms for both of them. And by that, I mean, I think there's likely a tradition of a frog and mice bat battle that was told in different forms, maybe both fable and mock epic, and that what we have with Aesop's uh, story 302 and with this epic um, are sort of later versions of this core story. Would this tale have been told to children, or would it have been a, an amusing tale to tell adults as they gathered around the fire? So I think it's probably the latter, um, uh, it may be originally. So the, the poem is chock full of literary references and sort of uh, highbrow intellectual games with the language of uh, the poetry. And so I think it was likely composed uh, by someone who knew Homer and Homeric traditions and other things really well for maybe a sympotic or banquet atmosphere. So its length of about 300 lines is about what you could do in, you know, an hour or so if you read it out, right? So it's about the right amount of material to read out loud in some sort of a gathering. 
And it's a little more complicated and requires a lot of knowledge of the epic tradition to really enjoy um, at one level. But over time, I think it sort of changed in use. Um, so the form that we have um, was heavily edited and enjoyed by Byzantine audiences. And it probably was copied and edited a lot in the educational process. So um, if I had to imagine sort of the genesis and life of this text, I would say it was created for a highly literate and, and literary audience who liked this type of play um, in the Hellenistic period and maybe performed um, in gatherings, maybe in over drinking. But over time, it became a kind of school text, a sort of a play homer um, for early readers as they uh, moved on from fun things to more serious work. There's a play that I wish I saw. It was a uh, performance of the Battle of the Frogs and Mice in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, celebratory uh, theater festival in called The Fringe. And I could see something like this aimed towards children, especially with the costumes and, and, and the storyline. But I just wonder if at one time in some distant past, uh, men may, might have sat down and listened to this poem and would listen to the references and kind of point a finger and say, yeah, yeah, I know that one. That sounds familiar. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot of language in here that really just plays with uh, Greek language and with the uh, Greek epic tradition, right? So if you start out just with some of the names involved in it, right? Um, it, it's, it's winking names. Okay, like C. Carpox, who's like, you know, crumb snatcher. They're, they're just funny names, right? But at the same time, it's playing with convention. So you get like <coughs> thirds and halves of Homeric lines that are awkwardly adapted. Um, you get characterizations and epithets that make you think of, um, of Homer. And the more you know about it, the more you actually may may sort of engage with it a simple one is that the uh, the name of one of the main characters is um it, it, sorry his father's name is Pelaus, um which sounds like peleus right um so it's sort of playing with achilles you need a little myth there right and then there's other you know jokes like the name the main frog's name is uh, in greek fusiknathos um which means you know cheeks that blow up like bellows and so uh, you know there's a sort of a, a sophisticated punning there that can be enjoyed by different audiences but i think what's really uh, remarkable about the poem is that you know it's got this ridiculous sort of absurd plot and cast but then it also expects a certain level of familiarity with epic conventions and myth to get all the jokes. In reading Homer, I seem to remember epithets that read like rosy-fingered dawn and swift-footed Achilles. Am I wrong? I, I seem to caught a few things like uh, crumb snatcher in the poem. Absolutely. It's, it's playing on that, playing on compounds. It's also playing on the fact that a lot of Greek um, mythic names are what we call speaking names, 
right? They have a content to them that were part of sort of folk etymological interpretation. And so for a couple, just before we can think about like uh, a crumb thief um, and names like that um, in this poem, you know, Hector's name, Hector, son of Priam, his name, his hands mean the holder or the protector, and he's the defender of the city. Um, and then the names of Achilles and Odysseus are famously opaque but meaningful. So Achilles' name is probably a compound of akos for grief and laos, which means host people or army. So it's analyzed as woe for the host or the host's grief, right? Because he creates it. And Odysseus's name is Odysseus, the hateful one, which could mean he causes hate in people or he hates a lot of people. Um, and that's played with in the Odyssey itself. When um, Athena says to Zeus, uh, why do you Odysseus him? Why do you hate him so much? So I think this is definitely playing with the tradition. But I also think beyond this, there's a uh, comic tradition of mock epic um, that plays with these names and, and has this game as well. Um, so we know as early as the 6th century BCE, there are poets who will take like one line from Homer and then change a word in it to make it funny. Right. I mean, people just played games with this. But there were also festivals for mock epic, you know. People who would come and perform at Athens and other places, really uh, sort of ridiculous poems in epic verse. Uh, so I, I think that there was an entire convention of mocking epic style and dictions that, that, that far precedes this poem. So I think that this poem itself is building on um, those traditions and sort of winking at them in amusing ways. You know, I could see the Battle of the Frogs and Mice being very dramatic if it was performed in full costume. For the longest time, I imagined sort of like 1970s dramatic animation doing it. Or, or you know, I mean, this, there's a kinship in this with even uh, comic books and kids' entertainment. If you think about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or there was a game in the 80s for Nintendo called Battletoads, um, where you'd play exactly what it sounded like, a toad who went to war. Um, and so I, I think, you know, our experiences as readers and viewers of the world around us um, sort of influence what we think might work. Um, I think because it's so fantastic and strange, I always did imagine some sort of animated version. Uh, but on stage, it could be pretty funny as well, uh, because so much of the humor of this play comes um, from the speeches of the uh, characters themselves. So I think the right actors in semi-comic costumes um, could add some real, had some real comic and tragic depth uh, to the speeches. I came across this poem by accident when I was about nine years old. My folks had a huge library in the front room. Us kids used to sit on a green chair that could turn 360 degrees in a circle, so it was a cheap carousel. But we occasionally we'd uh, grab a book off the shelf, and the book I grabbed was a version of The Battle of the Frogs and Mice. And it was written by George Martin and illustrated by Fred Gwynn. Now, George Martin was the English record producer who promoted the Beatles and the illustrator uh, might be more familiar to you but uh, if it is it dates you 
it was a gentleman by the name of Fred Gwynn, who was Herman Munster on the 60s TV show. He made a brilliant career of um, portraying a Frankenstein monster as a henpecked husband. Well, what surprised me about the book is I thought I was looking at a children's book at the time, and I opened it up, and the first illustration that came to was a mouse cutting a frog in two, in fact, cleaving the frog in two. You could see the skin sliced cleanly apart, and you could see the entrails, brain, eyes, tongue sliced neatly in two. Another page revealed a mouse gutted in mid-center, another mouse dying, bile and blood pouring from his mouth as he expired on the ground, while flies circled about. Now, it's a little surprising that a comic book kid, God knows what they feed kids in comic books, I was still shocked by it, and I ran to my dad to please explain. And he, he was a World War II veteran. He had seen some gore while he was over there, but I couldn't understand what it was doing on our shelf. It seemed pretty shocking to me at the time. Do you think people listening to this poem and the first, second, third, or fourth century would have the same reaction? <laughs> I think that they would laugh uproariously. Right? Yeah, you know, because here's the thing, you know, a, a culture's tolerance of violence or experience of it has a lot to do with, you know, their own story and their own cultural history. So many of us, in, especially in the United States and of certain classes, are rather insulated from any type of physical violence, especially that having to do with the body. Uh, but, you know, the story is very different throughout most of time. Where people are much more intimate with the dead, sort of taking care of their own corpses, um, and where injuries and sickness are part of everyday life. So I think the world is more sanitized now. And the violence in here, it's, it's pretty... Uh, mild compared to some of that described in the Iliad, right? So uh, part of the problem is deciding which audience we're talking about. You know, if we're talking about Greek audiences in, say, the archaic and classical period, they went to war and they saw injuries all the time. You know, um, cosmopolitan audiences during the Hellenistic period, maybe a little less violence. Um, and then I, I know even less about, say, child audiences uh, during the Byzantine, Byzantine period. But that doesn't mean that your response isn't meaningful, because to me, it, it goes to something deeper. We'll get back to the home to the humor in a moment. But, you know, there, there's always this question about what Homeric violence means and what the effect is of the violence in the Homeric poems, um, because some pretty brutal things happen. Right. Um, I was just reading this passage this morning where the youngest child of Priam, Polydorus, is, is struck in the back by Achilles' spear, and the spear comes out through his belly button, and his intestines fall into his hands. Uh, if we were to see that in a movie, it would be either comically grotesque or just straight-up brutal to see. Hearing it, it really depends on your experience and how deeply you envision it. Right. So I think that part of the function of Homeric violence is to make us question if it's worth it or not. Right. So I think and I think that's true for the Iliad. Like it's so obscene. Um, it's so brutal that it makes you wonder what is actually worth fighting for. 
when it comes to the Odyssey, the violence you see there near the end uh, makes you question the very goal of the Odyssey, the very concept of vengeance and payback. When you get it here, though, I think it renders ridiculous the epic struggle, struggles because it's a frog and a mouse, right? And I think your visceral, visceral reaction to seeing an image of that in, the, in Martin's book that you mentioned is an indication of the difficulty of switching uh, media, right? It's very different to think of violence um, when you hear it described than it is to see a picture of it because that picture is forced to flesh out the details for you in a way that a narrative doesn't, right? Um, when I describe Polydorus holding his innards in his hands, it, it's just a fact, Right. It's very different from actually seeing if it's a cinematic version, the shape of the organs as they melt through the fingers. And if it's cold outside, the steam coming out of the open body as the blood drips to the ground. Right. Those descriptions are very different. Um, so I, I just think that it's about context and reference point. Right. Ancient audiences um, were familiar with poetic descriptions of violence in a way that we aren't. Um, and so, you know, they wouldn't come to a random book in their father's office like you did. Uh, they would hear this story in epic verse that was not that far off from the other stories they had heard about. I'm curious, uh, who is your favorite character in the poem? Ooh, wait, wait, in, in, in this poem? Yeah, uh, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I find, uh, I think both the main uh, frog and mouse are pretty visible as characters, right? Um, I think probably the the most um, the one the one I actually empathize with the most because she's so comical is Athena, right? So Athena shows up in the middle of the poem, um, and she's complaining to Zeus, right? So it's this like divine counsel moment that you get uh, similar to the beginning of the Odyssey, and Zeus says, "Hey, uh, why won't you go and help?" The, frog, the mice, right? They're always dancing in a temple. Um, and Athena complains. She's like, I'm never going to help the mice because they ruined my gardens and my oil and my robe. And, and because of them, I am in debt to the tailor, which is ridiculous, right? Um, and then she adds, I'm not going to help the frogs because they keep me up all night uh, with their uh, endless riveting. Um, so I just, there's something about that, that sort of, uh, sacrilegious, even you know, humanizing depiction of Athena that I find really kind of fetching. Right, it's not one that you'll see elsewhere. Um, and the rest of the characters, I mean, they're just you know, they're funny um, and they're kind of arrogant, and they are you know, sort of they're heroic in the sort of depressing way um, that they don't see their own limits. Uh, and so I think I think we're supposed to feel contempt. Um, for the mice and the frogs in the story. So I first encountered this poem um, in grad school as I was preparing for my PhD qualifying exams. Um, and I ran into it and I read it. And I think I translated it then for the first time. I went through it and I thought, wow, it'd be really interesting to work on this someday. But it's the kind of thing you don't work on because you're not going to get hired to teach anybody this poem. Right. I mean, it's just it's rare. It wasn't even required for my qualifying exams. I just ran into it. And so a lot of people don't know about it. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, I get into obscure things. Um, so almost 10 years after that, 
I sat down with my friend, Eric Robinson, and we we're going to read something completely different. I don't remember what it was we we're planning to read, but I said, well, yeah, this is obscure, whatever text it was. It's kind of like the Petrarca Momachia. And Eric said, what is that? I'm like, you've never read it? Um, and he said, no. So we took it out and just started reading it. Um, and almost from the first lines, there were it, it was unclear. There were problems we were encountering. Um, and we, we realized there was no commentary in English. And there weren't that many translations. Um, so we have a website, sententiaantiqui.com. Um, and we decided to put a free translation up as we were doing it and just sort of to add some commentary on the way. So this translation and the commentary in the book that we have out really came from us just sort of meeting every week, working on 10 lines or so and doing a blog post over it um, and then just doing some research over time. So the translation we end up deciding on isn't a very artful one. We tried to be as literal as possible so people to sort of help people understand the content of the text and sort of so that the, uh, the translation could be a midpoint between our, the Greek text and the comment, commentary we provided. So we tried to be consistent in the naming and the formulae. And we also just tried to you know, give a sense of the type of diction and, and play that you might get out of it. So um, as we say, I think in the introduction, we say something pretty ridiculous, like the uh, translation will be a, uh, it will be a help to many, but it will be pleasing to few. And, and really, I think as someone who you know, teaches this uh, Greek in the original and who writes a lot on it, I find translations tremendously frustrating. They can be beautiful and wonderful, but they're not the original thing. Um, so we really want to create a translation that would encourage people to look to the Greek um, and help them uh, sort of get some meaning out of it. So there's this famous um, quip, right, um, from Richard Bentley. He was a, a famous British or English classicist. When Pope's Homer was published, someone asked him about it. Um, and he said, oh, tis a pretty poem, but you mustn't call it Homer. And his point was that, you know, you could create a work of art that, from translation, uh, but it's never the same thing as the original because you can't translate word for word. You lose metaphors, you lose resonance, you lose both form and function. Um, and, you know, I think for any work of art that requires translation, almost every generation needs a new translation of its own um, because idiom changes, context changes, um, and people's expectations on how language functions changes, right? Um, so, you know, it's very hard to put Greek epic into English because a big part of Greek epic is the meter. Right, so the first line of the Iliad is main in Aedithiapeleidoakaleos. You can't get the rhythm and the sound into English, right? At some point, you have to decide what are you going to prize the most. Um, so, like Emily Wilson, with her recent translation of the Odyssey, decided to put it in an iambic pentameter line and to make some pretty idiosyncratic um, choices in translation that really works. And because she's breaking with traditions that have sort of glossed over certain issues with the epic, like the treatment of enslaved people and women. And then she makes a choice early on to call Polytropos Odysseus a complicated man. 
And this is a thing that sets her poem apart as something different, right? This is a creation on its own. And I would dare say, you know, to crib from Bentley, it's a pretty poem, but it's not Homer. It's Wilson's Homer. Um, so, yeah, it, any translation of uh, the Petrachomomachia has to deal with so many layers because it's comedy, right? It's parody based on something very serious. I think a translator of this needs to have a firm grasp of Homer of Homeric language, and also has to have a good sense of humor. And you don't always get these three things wrapped into the same person. How would someone go about getting a copy of your book? Well, you can go to bloomsbury.com or Amazon and just look for The Battle of Frogs and Mice or search Joel Christensen. It'll come up. Uh, there's a paperback version that's a lot cheaper than the hardcover version uh, right now. I think it's $35 or something. Um, and yeah, it's there. It's also, um, if you do searching, there's also, uh, an introduction to Homer that I did with a man named Elton Barker. Uh, I think that's $13, um, which, which lays out a lot of the basic ideas and problems about the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so those are good places to start. Talking to you has been very, very insightful. And I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. I, I hope that everything's going well for you in DC. Okay. You too. All right. Take care. That concludes this episode of Ancient Rome Refocused. On the next show, we are going to have Morgan Tobert, who runs the popular blog site Letters to Cicero and My Other Dead Friends. So see you then on Ancient Rome Refocused.